This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Is there a way to clear up the water, so to speak, in order to help organizations to improve access, improve patient care, improve outcomes, and start to get ahead of some of these problems? Not only are they plaguing our healthcare organizations, they start to impact our society. Really getting ahead of this problem can solve quite a bit that actually moves past the hospital walls. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. I have my primary care partner in crime, Stephanie Snyder, joining us today. She's going to talk about her primary focus at SG2, which is behavioral health. We have been getting so many questions this spring from our members, really detailed questions. They want our help rolling up our sleeves with them to help solve big, complicated behavioral health questions. The spigot's always on for behavioral health questions, but we've definitely gotten a surge of big, complicated ones this spring. And so I wanted a chance to touch base with Stephanie and hear what big health systems are trying to solve in behavioral health and how we've worked with them on that. Stephanie, thank you so, so much for agreeing to join us. Give me the highest level landscape. What types of questions are members asking us about behavioral health? Is it operational, financial, connected to capacity concerns and throughput? Where on the spectrum are these questions and projects landing? We are getting questions on all of those things. Given that SG2 is a strategy firm, most of the questions revolve around strategy. My clinical background helps organizations quite a bit. I worked as a mental health therapist for about a decade. And then from there, I did some work and of course, strategy, but also business development and operations and some other things. And so when we get into these projects, it allows me and the rest of my team at SG2 to go really deep into any topic related to behavioral health. Because we have have that expertise. We can really run the gamut. As a result of that, we get a lot of very diverse questions. But as I'm sure most of us in healthcare acknowledge, there's a lot of other nuances that go into strategy, financial and operational, patient outcomes, and a lot of other things touch strategy. Some organizations are calling because they're specifically focused on patient outcomes. Many of them are focused on unclogging the emergency department. That's really where the rubber meets the road in behavioral health, and that's where the pain point largely is. And then nearly all of them, nearly every conversation I have regarding behavioral health talks about the financial implications. Organizations are struggling. And what I've come to realize is they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what it's supposed to look like. They don't know if they're doing it right. And it is supposed to look this poor. They call us often to get a baseline in the regard of financial outlook. You know, one of our big themes this summer with members is the idea that every strategic question they're tackling, there's no layups right now. There's no silver bullets. Everything's about a balance. What are on the opposite ends of the balance beam as systems think about challenges or opportunities in behavioral health? Most organizations are looking to improve access, whether that's for reasons to make the flow, the operational part of their organization work better, or it's to improve patient outcomes. There could be a number of reasons that we'd want to improve access. It could also be to address some of those social determinants of health. We know that that's an important aspect of the bottom line. Working on social determinants can add value to your healthcare system, both financially and intangibly. On one end, we have this desire to improve access, but as I mentioned on the other end, and it will sound like a broken record, but the financial aspect is so muddy in this field. 
having been in this field such a long time, I have seen this aspect of behavioral health go on for 20 plus years. And one has to wonder, is it designed to be money? Do we keep it money on purpose? Or is there a way to clear up the water in order to help organizations to improve access, improve patient care, improve outcomes, and start to get ahead of some of these problems? Not only are they plaguing our healthcare organizations, they start to impact our society. There's been a number of studies that show as we improve access through improved throughput in the ED, through outpatient care, through enhanced services like IOP and PHP, whatever it might be, there's lots of choices. We start to see other improvements in the community. We see better employment rates, reduced use of law enforcement, and so on. Reduced rates of child abuse and elder abuse and neglect. Less substance use. It goes on and on. So really getting ahead of this problem can solve quite a bit that actually moves past the hospital walls. It sounds like you're getting to how organizations should think about return on investment in a different way in behavioral health. Yeah. Return on investment in behavioral health is tricky. The traditional way to look at a financial throughput when you're a financially minded person is money in, money out. It should come out black as opposed to in the red. But if you do that in behavioral health, it's very frequently will come out looking negative. We did a project recently in a Florida hospital that pulled us in specifically for that aspect. And what we found was they had a lot of coding and billing opportunities. They were not coding and documenting correctly, and as a result, they were not billing correctly. Then they were also getting kickbacks from the health insurance companies saying, that's an error, that's an error. After doing that for years and years, the organization starts to just become fatigued. I mean, how many times do they feel like they can resubmit the same bills and keep getting discouraged? And so that's kind of what I mean. They don't know if that's normal. They don't know if there's a better way to do it. And so SG2 worked with our accounting colleagues of Kaufman Hall, and we went in and created some opportunities for them to look at their billing and coding practices. We also talked about operational flow and throughput, as well as created some improvement in their strategy. Have there been projects where the ask has been more clearly strategic? We know there's optimization on the finance and operational sides, but we're thinking about service line growth. We're thinking about the connection between behavioral health and every other service line. What are some of the strategic questions members are asking around behavioral health? We did a project recently in what I would call a more traditional strategic plan. This organization was in the Northeast, and they had, over the last couple of years, quite a bit of M&A activity. They had gathered and scooped up some organizations around different counties in their area, and they had a lot of piecemeal behavioral health services. I find when organizations don't have a clear strategic plan, it's not well thought out, not well operationalized, they run into a number of barriers. Again, these are operational, they're financial, and so on and so forth. But it has to do with having a very clear roadmap, which we call strategy. And so after years of M&A activity, this organization needed help to make sense of that. And so they brought SG2 in and we created some guidance to help their strategy and guide their strategic plan, which they'll take and they'll think through what makes sense in the context of their locale, because it is an unusual geography where this hospital is located. We did another project earlier this year. This one was out west, a little bit more traditional as well in that it was creating a strategy, but it was for a whole community. This community was across several hours of driving. It brought together three behavioral health players in the state and required participation from all of these players in order to make the strategy work. 
they all had to come together, decide who was going to do what piece of the pie and why and how. And SG2 not only helped with that strategy, but helped facilitate those conversations. This was an area of the country that had some historic baggage. Some of the organizations weren't overly friendly with each other in the past, but new leadership had evolved. And so SG2 helped to create some of those very needed conversations, which ultimately helped to result in a better outlook for the community. One of the players decided to do the inpatient space, one decided to do the outpatient space, and one decided to build out some other services, namely in the ED and some other things. But having those conversations probably would not have happened without an outside resource such as SG2. Yeah, that's good. That must have been another exciting project. You get a lot of fun ones. Is behavioral health usually organized like a service line? Yes, it should be organized as a service line in order to better operationalize what you're doing. Having a clear roadmap on where you want to go can help work out those operational inefficiencies, help improve quality outcomes. It also helps patients understand where they need to go to get the services that they're looking for. So the flow becomes better, not only for the hospital, but for the patient as well. We do get quite a bit of organizations who say, oh, we're not really ready for a full service line. But those are also the same organizations that say that they're losing their shirt in behavioral health. The two are very much interrelated. And that's one of the main messages that I try to relay is you have to either be in or be out. You can't have one toe in the water. You really need to make a decision. You don't need to be everything to everybody. It's not to say that an organization needs to have ownership of every piece of behavioral health in the area. That's not the case at all. In fact, I encourage organizations to not do that. Do what makes sense for your organization in the scope of the grand scheme of your community. Have those conversations start talking with local organizations. I talked with another hospital yesterday, and one of the things that they mentioned to me was, we don't know if we need partnerships. We're not sure if other players want to work with us. We're not sure if we should build out everything. Can you come in and provide some guidance for us? Sure, of course we can. Sometimes those consulting opportunities for us actually mean encouraging the conversations that I talked about earlier. That's a way to increase access. It's a way to better your community. And it's a way to decide if you're in the ship or out of the ship. From there, you can start to guide your strategic plan and that will increase your bottom line. That's good. Often when you and I are on the phone together with members, we're talking primary care. And inevitably, you talk about integrating behavioral health and primary care. And the last dozen calls we've been on about that, people have said, Stephanie, we got to talk more about that. Let's set up a separate time to talk. Does that happen in other service lines as well? Are the strategic discussions getting a little bigger and broader about almost putting behavioral health over in its own service line? And then they're thinking of it as kind of a resource and a tool that's going to integrate in other, whether it's disease specific or other tailored and segmented approaches health systems are taking. Yeah, it doesn't happen as much as I would like it to. I think it's coming. We're going to see more of that. I do see it occasionally, but it's more of Stephanie will be on the call from a behavioral health lens and will say, how do we integrate into these other service lines, cancer, women's, peds, and so on. And primary care is a big part. We could talk for 20 minutes just on primary care integration. I don't think there's a lot going the other direction. For example, I don't think when our cancer expert is on, somebody's saying, hey, let's talk about behavioral health integration. I don't think it goes that direction. However, the integrated work is coming. There are a lot of organizations 
organizations who are already doing that, there will be more. It's where primary care integration was 10 years ago, just in the starting point. And now primary care integration is fairly normal. I've seen data points that say up to 60% of primary care volume is behavioral health related. I'm actually crunching some data within our AMS system here at SG2 to see if that number holds up. It's going to come pretty close to be determined. We'll see how that works out. Either way, we know it's a lot. Whether it's 60% or 40%, it's a lot. We need to embrace it. Clients and patients are coming to primary care because it's their first stop. It's easy. They have a relationship sometimes with these providers. It just makes sense. So for a mild to moderate patient, it really does make a lot of sense for the primary care office to see those patients, triage them appropriately. That same organization I talked to yesterday, that was part of their ask too. They said the number of patients coming into primary care is growing, but so is the acuity. And we need to know what to do with those higher acuity patients. In full disclosure, they're not usually appropriate for primary care. That's where you have to have in your back pocket, where am I going to send this patient who is actively suicidal or perhaps schizophrenic, but doesn't have their current medication? That's not really an appropriate level patient for primary care. But having a full continuum and having resources in your pocket, which is good operational flow, which is good strategy, and you can start to see how all of these things really pull together. So there are plenty of big questions happening today. What's a question members aren't asking yet? Maybe you think it might be the second or third order question that's going to come down the road, or maybe you're just hopeful that that's where they can get. What do you think is coming next? There's two things. The first thing that'll come about is one we talked about. It'll be integration across all of the other service lines. Behavioral health touches every patient in every service line. I'm doing research outside of SG2 on the topic of cancer integrating primary care. And what are the barriers to oncology teams wanting or not wanting to provide the service? I hope to have more on that in about a year. There's a lot to be leveraged there. A lot of pediatric offices are doing it. There's a lot of talk. Actually, in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten a number of clients asking, about women's health and postpartum depression and integrating those types of services, which is wonderful. It's way overdue. That's the first one. The other is a lot of organizations would like to focus on social determinants of health, but they have such pressing issues, for example, flow, throughput, operational challenges, workforce challenges, margin. There's all of those other more pressing in-your-face needs, but ultimately, if we can start to help those subside a little bit, social determinants is a big issue. Can you imagine if someone told expecting moms, like before they were at the hospital, hey, you're probably going to feel crummy for a while when you get home. I don't remember hearing that. And I know I wasn't prepared for it and like wasn't a good supportive partner because of it. So that's a low hanging fruit, easy opportunity. Absolutely. And to that regard, it's also important to know that if a patient has a behavioral health condition, there's a really good chance that they also have a comorbid medical condition in some degree. This is very much especially true when it comes to substance use, but we'll focus on new moms. There's also a comorbid medical diagnosis. Guess what? If they're admitted to your hospital, build that medical diagnosis first because they can be admitted as a medical patient with a comorbid behavioral health condition, it's a much better payment model. Sometimes that's overlooked and that's where organizations start to lose their shirt. We've covered a lot of what's happening today and what you expect or hope is going to happen next. Any summative thoughts that you feel like you've had coming out of so many projects in a short amount of time? If I had to really sum it up, it would be organizations feel lost. Hospitals don't know what they don't know and they don't know who to call either. They just feel lost. 
They don't know if the margin is the way it's supposed to be. They don't know if the operational flow is this is just the way it's supposed to be. So if nothing else, reach out to a trusted advisor, whether that's a partner organization, an organization like SG2 or somebody similar, and start to have questions. Is this how it should look? What can we do differently? Where can we be better? What should be our main focus here? Do we have the right continuum of services? Many of the services can be financially positive, which can help offset those that are not financially positive, leading you to close to a break even. There's downstream implications, lower length of stay, lower readmission rates, lower case mix index. When those comorbid behavioral health conditions are treated, the med surge patients also see better outcomes as well. That's really good. Thanks. Thanks for sharing so many of these stories and your perspective on SG2 Perspective. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm -hmm.